you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter number 20. Don't have your Bible. If you need to borrow one, we have some in the back. If you do not own a Bible, we have some Bibles we'd like to give you, or a Bible we'd like to give you. Just hold up your hand and we'll get you one. Anybody need a Bible? So as you know, we've been studying through the book of John, particularly with events leading up to the cross and the crucifixion and the actual crucifixion. And now last week we looked at the burial of Jesus Christ. And in verse number 20, we see something miraculous take place. We see the discovery of the empty tomb. By this point, Jesus has been in the ground for, or in the tomb for three days, three days and three nights. And we're going to look at this, the first part of the, the discovery to this week, and we'll look at some more of it next week. I want to kind of back up a little bit and kind of explain something to you about John's writing. John is not writing a historical account to prove the historical account of Jesus Christ. He's not writing it to prove the existence of Jesus, to prove the existence of God. What he is writing it for is for two points. One, he wants to give, give you the evidence that he saw that caused him to believe. And secondly, he wants to give you the evidence so that you have enough so that anyone reading this will have the ability to immediately believe and understand. These things are written so that you might believe. It's not a historical account, but nevertheless, the history of John is perfect, just like the history of the Bible is perfect. It's interesting that we'll see skeptics that will say from time to time there will be a king, just a, a vague passing reference of a king in the Old Testament. And there's no record of him in existence. And so the scholars will say, well, see, that's a mistake because that, that king never existed. If he existed, we would know about it. And then some archaeological dig someplace will find that king's name inscribed on a wall or on a coin or some other place just because there's not a lot of historical, secular historical evidence of, a, of an existence of something. Understand, if the Bible says it happened, it happened exactly the way the Bible says that it happened. And I always, I always find it cute and amusing when uh, somebody today, 2,000 years or 4,000 years after the fact, will claim that they have better information than the people that were actually there and wrote it down while it was happening. That, that just, that's amazing to me that anybody would be that audacious. But nevertheless, we run into that. Um, we'll see more and more of that as this world becomes more and more um, humanistic, more and more liberal. We'll see more and more of that type of thing taking place um, where supposed science uh, disagrees with the Bible. By the way, science has almost always disagreed with the Bible. When the Bible said the earth hung upon nothing, the, the uh, science said that we rode around on the back of a turtle. <laughs> when the Bible said that the earth was round and floated as a ball, um, science said we were flat, and if you got too close to the edge, you'd fall off. So understand there's a difference between science and opinion science. Most of the science that you see on TV, most of the science that you see relating to, by skeptics to the Bible is an opinion science. They start with, a, with their own set of facts, which include the non-existence of God, and then they try and explain things without God being in existence. And unfortunately, it never quite works. That's why the opinion science is always changing. But true science will always be completely in line with the Word of God. Because God is the one that created science. He's the one that created our world. 
He's the one that created everything in the world. He's the one that created every one of the scientists. And if they will humble themselves before Jesus Christ, they can also have the wisdom, the true wisdom, to be able to see it. And many scientists have. Unfortunately, we don't get to hear much from them. But many scientists have turned themselves over to Jesus Christ and are finally seeing the truth. But I wanted you to understand, because when you look at this, you say, well, why didn't John talk about this? Or why wasn't there more emphasis on this? Because the emphasis isn't here to prove God's existence. You know, nowhere in the Bible is anything given to prove God's existence. The assumption is made from the very beginning of, of Genesis 1-1 that God is real and God exists. How does John 1-1 start? In the beginning, what? God. Does it explain him? Does it give it a, a rational account or a scientific account? No. It's just the fact that he is. All through the Bible, it is just that he is. And people that are honest and true with it, they realize that within their hearts, that's been something that we were born with. We were born with the knowledge that there is a God. We were born with a desire to seek and learn more about him. Unfortunately, the, the Bible also tells us that man has held that knowledge and pushed that knowledge down. The clearest picture that was ever given to me was, was the picture, and we've all done this when we were kids. Remember, well, at least here in Florida, because we had swimming pools and all around. I'm guessing people did it in other parts of the country, too. Where, you know, as a kid, if somebody threw a, a beach ball into the pool, one of the things that you had to do is try to hold it underwater. You were trying to hold a beach ball underwater, and just, you know, you try and sit on it, you try and push it down, push it down, push it down. But what always ends up happening? It always comes up and smacks you in the face. And unfortunately, the, many, much of the world treats the Word of God that way. They treat God that way, where they try and hold Him down, hold Him down, hold Him down. Unfortunately for them, He cannot be repressed. He cannot be held down, fortunately for us. So this description has many little details, many things that, that as we read through these, these we're only going to get through the first 10, 10 verses today. As we read through these 10 verses in John chapter number 20, we're going to see a lot of little details and some of them seem like, you know, why would that be, even be put there? It's put there for the two reasons that I gave you. One, John wants us to see what he saw that caused him to believe. And he wants to give us enough details so that uh, the casual reader or any reader that reads this will have enough information to also be able to believe. Um, the details are important. The, the details are what proves the resurrection. Because some of it, at first glance, doesn't make sense. If we were just trying to write a story about something that took place, we probably wouldn't include some of the details that are included. But we realized that this was a real event, not a made-up event. It suddenly becomes very apparent why those were there. We see that as the evidence of Jesus' resurrection. We also see the lives, as we'll look through this week and next week, the lives of the disciples and how they changed dramatically as a result of this. For those of you that aren't aware at this particular time when we're about to start reading, the disciples are basically in hiding. They're in hiding right now because Jesus Christ was crucified, and rightfully so, they believe that they're next because they were his followers. They were looked at by the Roman government and by the uh, Jewish religious of that day as being those that were trying to um, overthrow the government and overthrow the religion. And so they had cut the head off, or they thought they'd cut the head off of this organization, and now it was time to go after the lieutenants and the captains and all those that were underneath them. It was time to go after the apostles. They'd seen this happen before. They knew what was going to happen, but something was very different this time. The head that they thought they'd cut off was not actually cut off. We must remember, though, when we discuss evidence, the Bible was given to us 
for our inspiration, for our edification, for our reproof, and many other things. But the Bible was not ever given to us to prove God. Not once in the Bible does the Bible try and prove the existence of God. Not once in the Bible does it try and prove the existence of Jesus Christ. These are things that are assumed, and any student of history would see that there is more secular information about Jesus Christ than there was most of the um, political figures of that time frame. The Caesars, uh, Napoleon, many of those others that, that we see throughout history that we just take it as a fact. There's much less written and much less documented about them than what the secular world, I'm not even talking about what, what is in the Bible, the secular world has written about Jesus Christ. The first century um, scholar or historian, Josephus, uh, wrote in great detail. He was not a believer, but he wrote in great detail about the events that took place. And in his writings, he questions things because he doesn't understand what's happening. And he's not there to, to give an opinion. He's just there to say, this is what happened. I don't know why it happened. I don't know how it happened. But this is what happened. Let's get into our text this morning. John chapter number 20, verses 1 and 2. Said the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulchre, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulchre. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. So first thing we see is Mary's visiting the tomb, and it's early in the morning. It's still dark in the morning. It's early on the first day of the week. The first day of the week, of course, is Sunday. It's one of the reasons why we, we worship Jesus Christ on Sunday. We come together on Sunday. It's, a, it's to remember that resurrection Sunday. It's to remember that first Sunday when they gathered together to, to see the revealing of what took place. Jesus arose before dawn. The sun coming up, and we, all have, we usually have sunrise services and things like that, and, and those are nice around Easter, but under, understand, Jesus didn't arise at sunrise. He was discovered even before sunrise, but he was discovered. The sunrise gave illumination to the fact that he had already walked out of the tomb. But when she got there early on Sunday morning, he was already gone. Again, he arose the first day of the week on Sunday morning. This means that he had been in the grave exactly as he said, three days and three nights. His arising from the dead was a triumph. It was a conquest over death. It was also a conquest over sin. But the apparent evidence here was that it was a conquest over death. He arose on Sunday morning. He was dead to the law and its observances. This would be typically something that wouldn't have taken place because it was still, since it was before sunrise, this would have actually been on the Sabbath, the end of the Sabbath when he arose. And in the symbolism here is that he is above the law, the law of the Sabbath. He is above that. He's above the law. He is dead to the law, to its observances. And as we identify to believers, it's important that we understand the law. We understand why the law was given to us. We understand the value of the law even today. But we also need to understand that we are under a period of grace today, not under a period of law today. Just as the, the law was dead and had no effect upon Jesus, it also has no effect, uh, except for the ones that have been reconfirmed in the New Testament, has no effect upon us. The, the keeping of the Sabbath, although very, very wise in principle, is not a necessity today, although I encourage you to keep it. I, 
encourage you to take that one day a week and rest. Get away from, from what you're doing and take a time to rest. Our bodies need rest. Our minds need rest. We see that even while Jesus Christ was here on the earth, he observed Sabbath. And in addition to that, oftentimes we would see that usually right before a big event, right before something big was going to happen in his ministry, we would see that he would go off, either go off alone or he would take his inner circle with him. The, the three would go with him and we would see uh, John, James, and Peter, the four of them would go off by themselves to pray and rejuvenate and rest away from the other disciples, away from the hordes of people that would follow him. So it, it is encouraged and it's important, but understand we're not kept to that in the same standard they were in the Old Testament. He was dead to the law and its observances. So when Mary gets there, she sees that the stone was rolled back. This is strong evidence for a resurrection. The, 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 the stone, by the way, wasn't rolled back so that Jesus could get out of the grave. The stone was rolled back because if the stone wasn't rolled back, nobody would know that he was out of the grave. Typically what would happen is after somebody was placed in a tomb, and by the way, most people weren't placed in tombs back then. This was kind of an unusual occurrence, particularly for somebody of, of Jesus' social stature to be placed in a tomb. Uh, but he was placed in a tomb, a, a wealthy person's tomb a tomb fitting for a king, which he was, but that the world didn't acknowledge him as. So what happened is they would, they would take a stone, usually like a, a big wheel, is basically what it looked like, and it would, there would be a trench, and they would roll it down into the trench, so the gravity would help them roll it into place. Well, in order to move it out of the way, it would have to be pushed back up out of the trench, which was almost impossible. It was much easier, easier to seal the tomb than it was to unseal the tomb. They did this for a number of reasons. They did it because um, they didn't want the tombs to be robbed. Oftentimes people would be buried with, with their um, possessions and with, with wealth and different things. Depending on which gods and all that they worshipped, there, there was a difference of, of uh, wealth that would be buried with them. Um, and they didn't want those to be stolen. In the case of Jesus, the government didn't want his body stolen. They didn't want him made out to be a a risen saint. So they were, not only did they put the rock there, but they also had guards that were there to make sure that nothing took place, that nobody got out. So the very fact that this stone was rolled out of the way, something that was would be humanly impossible to do without causing a huge commotion, without causing a huge uprising, without being noticeable by everybody, um, the fact that it was rolled away is proof of his resurrection. Mary got there. She saw that the stone was rolled away. The stone was rolled back, not for the benefit of Christ, but for the benefit of us. And so what does she do? She runs back to Peter. This is important. This is one of those little details <coughs> that oftentimes is overlooked. She runs back to Peter. Why does she run back to Peter? Peter was in charge. This is important because when we last saw Peter, where was he at? He was repenting, wasn't he? Because he had denied Jesus Christ three times. Just as Jesus said. So think of, I want you to see this entire picture because where we've drugged this out over weeks, over weeks, over weeks, this has just been a matter of a few days. Peter has denied Jesus Christ three times publicly. And he has repented and he's been restored back to his role of leadership. This is powerful for us today. So often I see Christians who, who fail. I'll see Christians who stumble and they think that it's over for them. They think it's done for them. 
It's not done. Our God is the God of second chances. Our God is the God of third chances. I wish that no Christian ever stumbled once they accepted Christ as their Savior. But unfortunately, that's not the reality of it. The reality of it is we're still faced with those same temptations we had before we were saved. We're still uh, faced with the same influences from the world. And occasionally, no matter how great of a Christian you are, you could be Peter, the leader of the apostles, one of Jesus' inner circle, one of the ones that was the closest to him of all of them, and you can still fall. And you can fall hard. Denying Christ publicly? You know, I don't, I don't try and put myself on, on the level of, of Peter by any means. But I would never deny Christ publicly. Um, there's nothing that this world can do that would cause me to fear that. I know many times in Muslim countries and in, in some of our school shootings, it's been reported that, that the shooters will force people to deny Jesus Christ or be shot. And many people are shot. Many students are shot because they refuse to deny Jesus Christ. Many are beheaded in Muslim countries and in Europe because they refuse to deny Jesus Christ. Their testimony is a testimony that's even greater than Peter's in that regard. But we never, we generally don't know their names. So I'm not trying to put myself on, on, on Peter's level by any means, but understand, when Peter denied Christ, that was huge. And yet here he is, restored She ran to Peter. His cowardice. I mean, everybody had to know. Everybody had to know what he did. It was done in public. Everybody had to know what a coward he was. Everybody had to know how disobedient he was. This wasn't a little tiny private sin. You know, the, you know, the private sins that we try and hide. Nobody at church will know. No, this, was, this one was broadcast. This one was on Facebook. Everybody saw this one. There was video evidence. It was out there. But yet when he repented, he was able to be restored. One that took true repentance, which we don't have to get into the difference between uh, repentance and, and regret uh, today, but we, we've talked about that at length in other sermons. But this was true repentance. This was a, a change of mind, a change of heart within him, not just a regret at what he had done. Even though at this point, you know, Mary didn't understand what was going on. Because if she had understood what was going on, she would have said, Jesus arose, right? Jesus arose, just like he said he arose. Notice what she said in verse number three, um, or in verse number two. It says, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid him. So she doesn't understand what's taking place, but notice how she, she refers to him. She still refers to him as her Lord. Even though she doesn't understand what's taking place, she doesn't understand that he's alive. She still thinks that he's dead. She thinks somebody has taken his body. She refers to him as the Lord. She's a supreme example of one who loves and has dedication. She is going, and in her mind, it's all over. This thing that Jesus had started had died with him. But yet she still loved him. She was still devoted to him. She was going to take care of the body. She was going to take care and. and uh, officially prepare him for his his death. She was one of the first to attend the tomb, and she still called him Lord. You see, in her mind, Jesus Christ was her Lord. Whether he was dead or alive, it didn't matter to her. That was her Lord. Imagine how excited she's going to be when she finds out he's alive. It gives me shivers. 
Notice what happens when, when Peter and John find out. By the way, the other disciple that's spoken, spoken of here, verse number 3, says, Peter therefore went, and that other disciple came to the sepulcher. So they both ran, so they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. And he stooped down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. That other disciple that's not named here is John. John is writing about himself here, and he's kind of trying to be a little humble and not mention himself, just that, that other disciple that Jesus loved. So John and Peter, they, they hear the news. They hear about this shocking discovery, and what do they do? They went forth. Peter, therefore, went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. I want you to see the picture here, because today we need a, a society, we need a church, and we need a community that's discovered the empty tomb. We need a, 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 to get back to the roots of Christianity and understand that, that that empty tomb is important. But the only way that we discover the empty tomb is we have to go search for it. We have to go look for it. John and Peter could have stayed right where they were, where they were safe, and they would have never seen the empty tomb. They would have heard about it, but they would never have experienced it. You may be sitting here today and you may have heard about the empty tomb a hundred times. But if you want to experience the empty tomb, you have to go forth. You have to get up. Church is, church is great for receiving instruction. Church is great for getting a lot of head knowledge. But we get our hearts fixed when we start going forth. We, our feet take what takes place here on Sunday. Sunday was never supposed to be a, a spectator sport. Sunday was supposed to be something that prepared you to leave. We see over and over again in the book of Acts that, that after they would preach, the people would go out. Unfortunately, today, we've, in, in America in particular, we've, we've grown lazy sitting in pews. And we look at, at church as something either, either something to get a benefit from, which it wasn't made for that either. Either something we get a benefit from, we get fed from, we get all these things from, which those things happen, but they only happen when you come in with the right heart, a servant's heart. And we look at it more as something to check a, a box off on a sheet and say, well, I did my duty to God this week. Now, the idea of the, of, of the Sunday morning service is to remember what took place at that empty tomb, to look back at that and take that energy, take that truth, and go out and share it with the world. You see, because once, once the empty tomb was discovered, and we won't get into all of it today, but you'll see that it spread like wildfire. It couldn't be contained. No matter how hard the Roman government tried to contain it, no matter how hard the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, how hard they, they tried to, to contain it, it could not be contained. Throughout history, Christians have been executed. Throughout history, they've been burned. Bibles have been burned. People have been burned with their Bibles. They've seen people thrown in prison for possessing Bibles or, or preaching the name of Jesus Christ. Throughout history, we see persecution after persecution after persecution. In our own country, before we were the United States, we were still part of England, churches of those that, that um, believe the gospel would be locked shut on Sunday mornings with the people inside and burned down by the Catholic Church and by the Episcopal Church to keep the gospel from spreading throughout the communities. And every single time it failed. There's legislation now that will probably be passed now that we have a, a more liberal lean in our government that, that will make parts of the Bible hate crimes if they're spoken out loud or spoken to the wrong person. And it'll continue to happen. It'll continue to get worse and worse before it gets better. 
And although we don't like it, we need to understand that persecution is real and that persecution is coming. But no matter how hard they try, no matter how hard Satan and his minions try, just like they couldn't keep Jesus Christ in the tomb, they cannot keep the word of God from spreading. The Bible says his word doesn't return void. It goes out and it makes differences. Some people say, you know, I've had people ask me, well, do tracks still make a difference today? Tracks used to be really big in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Do they still make a difference today? If it's got God's word in it, it does. If it's all man's logic and man's word, probably not much. But if it's God's word, it won't return void. We want to discover that empty tomb. We've got to get up. We've got to go forth. Going forth is the only way that a man ever discovers the empty tomb, the only way that a man ever discovers the risen Lord, resting in our comforts. That's how we discover the empty tomb. That's how we discover the risen Christ. That's how we have relationship and understanding with Jesus Christ. Verse number seven. And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself, that went in also, then went in also the other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as, ye, for as yet they knew not the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. I want you to see some things. We talked a little bit at the beginning about details. In the, the last passage we read in this passage, there's details there that if, if this was a made-up story, it wouldn't have been included. One of those, what two disciples ran. We see that one disciple outran the other, outran the other disciple. John got to the tomb first, because why? He was younger. John's a kid, basically, at this point. And, and Peter is, you know, he's an old fisherman. And so he outruns him. No surprise there, but that wouldn't normally be included, because it, it doesn't seem like it has a big bearing on the story. It does have a bearing. We won't get into all that today, but it's got a small bearing on the story. We see the excitement and the youthfulness of John. But it's included because it's those details that make the story real. John is remembering and recalling exactly what happened. They get there and they see the, the garments laying there in the tomb. If somebody had stolen the body, why would they unwrap it first? We see the picture in Scripture given to us that it wasn't like the body had been unwrapped and then everything was cast off. Everything was done orderly. It's as if the, the body was wrapped and the body turned into vapor and the, the, the coverings, the wrappings just fell down upon themselves. Anybody that was stealing the body wouldn't have gone through the time to do that. I don't even know if that would be possible to do it. And then the napkin is folded. The napkin is what was placed across the face. It's folded neatly off by itself. A lot of speculation as to why that was off by itself, but the point of it, it doesn't really matter why it was put off, it's just the fact that it was. And the fact that it was points to an orderly, planned resurrection of Jesus Christ. These things are things that, that took place. This is John's thoughtful discovery. John is seeing all this. He stops at the tomb and he's looking in. Peter, being the more emotional of the disciples, he doesn't stop at the entrance. He runs right in. And they see those things there. Notice John's immediate belief. Verse number eight says, Then went in also that other disciple, that's John, which came first to the sepulcher, and he saw 
and believed. Remember I told you one of the reasons why John wrote the book of John was to give the evidence of his belief. This is why I believe what I do. One of the most powerful tools that God has given you to share the gospel with the world is your personal experience, your personal testimony. What we see in the book of John is we see John's testimony. John is testifying of Jesus Christ through his eyes. This is what I saw. This is how I saw it. This is what happened to me. And everything's been leading up to this point. Now he finally sees the resurrection, and now it comes floating back. And don't be confused by, by the verse where it says that they didn't know the, 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 um, the Scripture. Where is it at? Verse number 9, For as yet they knew not the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. People have stumbled on that Scripture and thought, well, but Jesus told them that he was going to do that. Jesus told them. It doesn't say they weren't told. It says they didn't know it. There's a difference between being told something and knowing something. If you've ever sat in a classroom in a college, you know there's a huge difference between being told something and knowing something. In essence, it wasn't that they hadn't been told. Jesus had told them repeatedly, now they know it. I would imagine all those things, all those phrases, all the, the, the hints and, and direct statements from Jesus Christ about this day probably all came flooding back for John. And now he knew. For the first time, he truly knows that Jesus Christ is the Christ. And he is, arose, he did arise from the dead. His immediate belief. We see the immediate belief of Peter as well, although not given as much detail. And then we see the disciples went out again, went away again unto their own home. This is important because when they go back to their home, there are people there waiting for them. There are waiting people there that are waiting for them to bring back the word of what they saw. You see, not all the disciples went, not all the apostles went, not all the followers went. Two went. Two went to bring back a testimony. Because one could be wrong. One person may miss something. One person may get something wrong. So two went. Two went to give a testimony so they can come back. And, and I, I would imagine probably even though John is writing here, Peter being the more emotional one, is probably the one that came back and like, you guys aren't going to believe what happened. The stone was rolled away. Jesus Christ was gone. His body wasn't stolen. The linens were there just as, as they were when he was laid in the tomb. He just, he just arose. Just as a spirit, his body and everything is just gone. I can imagine him relating it. And, and John being there on the side saying, yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. You know, he's there to give, give confirmation to what took place. The empty tomb should give us all hope today. For over three years, Jesus had told the, the world that he was there to seek and to save that which was lost. That sounds really good. Anybody can say that and it sounds good. What the empty tomb proves, though, is that Jesus Christ actually had the power and the authority to seek and to save that which was lost. Because in order to save something that's lost on a grand scale like this, the payment still has to be made. For every sin that's ever been committed since the time of Eve and Adam in the garden, up until today, there's a penalty that has to be paid for every single sin. God never overlooks sin. He can't. It was ironic that we sang that song today, God Can Do Anything. And the truth of it is, God can't do everything. It sounds good as a kid's song, and I understand the theology of it for a kid, and it's, a good, it's good for kids to give them hope, but there are some things that God cannot do. 
God cannot forgive sin without a price being paid. Why? Because he is perfect and he is holy and he is just. And there has to be a payment. If there's not a payment, then he is not holy anymore. He is not just anymore. God cannot lie. He always tells us the truth. And when he tells us that something is a sin, whether we agree with it or not, it doesn't really matter because he can't lie. And it's true. So a price has to be paid for us. So for Jesus to come, a man standing on the earth making a, a proclamation that he has come to seek and to save that which is lost. That sounds great. But without any power? It'd be like if I stood up here today and said, I'm going to pay off everybody's mortgages. Everybody would be like, hey, cool. Then you realize he doesn't have that kind of money. <laughs> he can't do that. And it sounds nice. And the thought's great. But I can't do that. Because I don't have that power. I can't do it. And so for the empty tomb, what the empty tomb proves to them, and, and, and I'm, I would imagine, can you imagine them walking back? You know, the just it, it has to be so overwhelming for them at this point. Because now they know that everything he said, he really has the power. There's no doubt the sacrifice was made. They all saw it on the cross. And now not only has he made the sacrifice, but he's defeated death and defeated sin. He truly is the one who can take away the sins of the world. Why? Because he's the one that made the sacrifice. He's the one that paid the price. A price has to be made. It doesn't matter if you're the world's worst sinner or the world's best sinner. You're still a sinner. It was put to me one time that somebody didn't, didn't like that term sinner. It just sounds so, I don't know what the word is. It just sounds so aggressive and mean. You know, it just sounds so bad for us. But we need to understand how bad things really are for us. You know, we, we trick ourselves into thinking that we're pretty good. And we compare ourselves to other people. We, you know, we turn on the news. The news is full of people that are worse than me. And so we look at that and say, you know what, I, I'm okay. I'm okay because I didn't kill anybody. I didn't rob anybody. I'm a pretty good person. And that's why the Bible calls us a sinner. Because he wants us to understand, God wants us to understand, that it doesn't matter if our sin was murder or our sin was theft or if our sin was just putting something else in front of him. We're all sinners. And none of us can save ourselves. A price has to be paid. In the Old Testament, that price was paid every year. Animals were killed, slaughtered, so that prices could be paid. When Adam and Eve first sinned, animals had to die. Prices were paid. The living had to die so that the price could be paid. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he was making the sacrifice. When he walked out of the grave, it was proof that his sacrifice was complete. There was no more sacrifice that needed to be made. Jesus Christ died once for all the sin. So by, way is, by the way, is why we don't generally, you won't generally see crucifixes in Bible-believing churches. Because a crucifix, by the way, the difference between a cross and a crucifix, if you didn't know, a cross is empty. And a crucifix has, has a, a, a person hanging on it. 
the, the symbolism of the crucifix is that Jesus Christ is continually being slaughtered. That Jesus Christ is continually being sacrificed for sin. That's not the picture in the Bible. The picture in the Bible was he, was he was sacrificed once. Once and for all. He's not suffering today. I know that, that's a great uh, tool of guilt used in many churches that you, know, you don't want to sin because every time you sin, it nails Jesus to the cross again. You know, it's like, well, kids are like, oh, we don't want to do that. You know, don't step on a crack. You might break your mom's back. We don't want to do that. And so, that, you know, it makes the kid act a little bit better. But that's not the truth. The truth is he was sacrificed and he suffered for your sins long before you were ever born. Before you were even thought of, before your grandparents were even thought of, he died for you on the cross. Your price has been paid. The only thing that you, the only piece that you have in all this, and by the way, your piece is really, really small, but it's really, really pivotal. Your piece in this is to, is to decide whether or not you want to love him or not. Whether or not you want to accept the gift that was given that day. Whether or not you want to make the choice, the conscious decision to turn away from your sin and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's your choice. There's not, it's not hard to do. It's the easiest piece of the entire uh, salvation process. It doesn't require you to be punished. It doesn't require you to be nailed to a cross. It doesn't, it doesn't require you to shed any blood because that's all taken. What it requires is you turning away from your sin and turning to Jesus Christ. We call that repentance, by the way. You hear that word repentance? That's what we're talking about. That's, a, that's an action verb. It means to turn away from from sin, it means to turn to Jesus Christ. Halfway is not good enough. You can't just turn away from your sin. Even if it was possible, we've already sinned enough that would keep us out of heaven. We turn away from sin, and we turn to Jesus Christ. Turning away from sin stops the destruction, or, or puts the destruction on hold, but it's turning to Jesus Christ that gives us eternal life. It's that part that restores us, that heals us, to make a, that's that part that makes us a new creature.